and welcome to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for feminist writings of the past 500 years. This is episode eight. I was planning on reading from Emma Goldman's Living My Life, volume two, but I haven't finished reading it yet. So instead, for this episode, I'm reading an excerpt from one of her essays about what anarchy stands for, and I have an interview with Ruth Kinna, the author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. I chose this essay because I was trying to find a definition of anarchism that cut through the confusion so prevalent in the media. As it turns out, the definition of anarchism is rather ephemeral. We can say that it means self-rule. We can say that it means collective organization. But as you will hear in my conversation with Professor Kinna, it is more a set of principles than it is an ideology. An excerpt from Anarchy, What It Really Stands For, Anarchy, by Emma Goldman. Anarchism, the philosophy of a new social order based on liberty, unrestricted by man-made law, the theory that all forms of government rest on violence and are therefore wrong and harmful, as well as unnecessary. The new social order rests, of course, on the materialistic basis of life, but while all anarchists agree that the main evil today is an economic one, they maintain that the solution of that evil can be brought about only through the consideration of every phase of life, individual as well as the collective, the internal as well as the external phases. A thorough perusal of the history of human development will disclose two elements in bitter conflict with each other, elements that are only now beginning to be understood, not as foreign to each other, but as closely related and truly harmonious, if only placed in proper environment, the individual and social instincts. The individual and society have waged a relentless and bloody battle for ages, each striving for supremacy, because each was blind to the value and importance of the other. The individual and social instincts. The one, a most potent factor for individual endeavor, for growth, aspiration, self-realization, the other an equally potent factor for mutual helpfulness and social well-being. The explanation of the storm raging within the individual and between him and his surroundings is not far to seek. The primitive man, unable to understand his being, much less the unity of all life, felt himself absolutely dependent on blind, hidden forces, ever ready to mock and taunt him. Out of that attitude grew the religious concept of man as a mere speck of dust dependent on superior powers on high, who can only be appeased by complete surrender. All the early sagas rest on that idea, which continues to be the leitmotif of the biblical tales dealing with the relation of man to God, to the state, to society. Again and again the same motif, man is nothing, the powers are everything. Thus Jehovah would only endure man on condition of complete surrender. Man can have all the glories of the earth, but he must not become conscious of himself. The state, society, and moral laws all sing the same refrain. Man can have all the glories of the earth, but he must not become conscious of himself. Anarchism is the only philosophy which brings to man the consciousness of himself, which maintains that God, the state, and society are non-existent. 
that their promises are null and void, since they can be fulfilled only through man's subordination. Anarchism is therefore the teacher of the unity of life, not merely in nature, but in man. There is no conflict between the individual and the social instincts any more than there is between the heart and the lungs. The one, the receptacle of a precious life essence, the other, the repository of the element that keeps the essence pure and strong. The individual is the heart of society, conserving the essence of social life. Society is the lungs, which are distributing the element to keep the life essence, that is the individual, pure and strong. The one thing of value in the world, says Emerson, is the active soul. This every man contains within him. The soul active sees absolute truth and utters the truth and creates. In other words, the individual instinct is the thing of value in the world. It is the true soul that sees and creates the truth alive, out of which is to come a still greater truth, the reborn social soul. Anarchism is the great liberator of man from the phantoms that have held him captive. It is the arbiter and pacifier of the two forces for individual and social harmony. To accomplish that unity, anarchism has declared war on the pernicious influences which have so far prevented the harmonious blending of individual and social instincts, the individual and society. And I'm recording. Okay, great. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being able to do this at such short notice. That's um, fine. I've just started reading your book, The Government of No One, as well. Ah. Hugely uh, informative. What drew you to anarchism, like um, as a study, as an ideology? Um, I suppose a bit of both at the time. I mean, it was it was largely through study because I I hadn't come across anything like anarchism on the left so I went to university as someone who thought of themselves as a socialist and on the left and at the time I, I went I mean everything all the politics I mean then as now I suppose was was really connected with feminism anti-racism it was I mean in this country it was the the start of of the Thatcher era so Reagan Thatcher economics um <laughs> so I mean, it, was, it was quite a powerful time I guess there was a, a surge in in the National Front, extreme right-wing organising. I was part of those kinds of, of movements um, you join as a sort of student, if you like. But none of the politics, I mean, virtually every, I, I did a, a history and politics degree and virtually everything I did revolved one way or another around Marxism, you know, much as I found that interesting. It didn't really sort of resonate with me and, until my second year and I did a course on Spain, on the Spanish Civil War. Which was really a, uh, I mean, a good part of it was devoted to to the revolution, to the anarchist revolution, and that was the first time I come across anarchism, and um, and I was just amazed, you know, that there was this other left uh, that 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 had, I'd never really come across. And then the the following year, I did an, another. It was a, a sort of political ideas course, but it was taught by an anarchist called Bill Fishman, and um, that's when I I sort of came across some of these these characters in anarchist in the, in the anarchist history of ideas and that's when I really started to read anarchism and I and I didn't look back I guess first is there a definition of anarchism that anarchists would use as a definition of anarchism so I think today most 
I mean, a lot of anarchists come to anarchism as, as something that they think of as a practice rather than um, rather than a set of, rather than a program or a set of beliefs or a political theory. And I think that's partly because uh, there's some suspicion, if you like, about putting anarchist politics into a box and saying this is what anarchists believe. And it's partly also in recognition of the fact that uh, traditionally anarchism has uh, has celebrated its diversity, uh, which which you find uh, evident, I suppose, in the in the use of prefixes and suffixes. So eco-anarchist, anarcho-feminist, anarcho-feminist. You know, there's a there's a recognition, if you like, that there are multiple ways into this politics, and so I think. I think the preferred way now is to think of it as, as, a, as a practice and as a kind of politics and uh, a particular approach to, to a, a kind of critical left socialism, um, which is uh, focused on concepts of domination, concepts of oppression, um, and trying to find ways of addressing and confronting and, and overcoming them. In the Emma Goldman essay, I think it's called anarchism, what it stands for. Mm -hmm. um, she defines anarchy as the philosophy of a new social order based on liberty, unrestricted by man-made law, the theory that all forms of government rest on violence and are therefore wrong and harmful as well as unnecessary. Was her view on that uh, shared by many anarchists of her day? And has that idea changed to today? Like, have we evolved it? Has it shifted? So I think all of those, I think Emma got all of those ideas are there, but I think the emphasis has changed. I think at the point at which Emma Goldman comes into the anarchist movement, there's a much higher expectation, if you like, of significant um, anti-capitalist movement, that there is this, there is this possibility, if you like, of, of a kind of a revolutionary transformation one way or another. Um, and, and I think, I mean, revolution itself can mean different things to different people. And it certainly meant something sort of quite specific, I think, to people like Emma Goldman, that, sh that she wasn't thinking necessarily about barricades. She was actually thinking about changes in social relationships, um, which might involve barricades. But, but that was actually what she was, what she was about. And I think there, there was a sense, a much greater sense of optimism that, that that kind of change was possible. Although everything that she says is still broadly, I mean, uncontroversial in, in, in anarchist movements, there's a different kind of, of way of thinking about these things. So if you take the first part of her definition, which, which is really about self-organisation, I think that's, I mean, that's fundamental to anarchist practice, that, that uh, you know, the idea that you don't have to be told what to do, that people can organise their own affairs without fixed or permanent central authorities, that that kind of, of self-organization tends to encourage mutuality, uh, consensus, that it's actually a more productive way of living. All of that is deeply embedded in the anarchist movement. So I think that's there. I think also, I mean, the second part of her definition, she says, um, states are based on violence. So the idea that the kinds of social orders that we, that we inhabit are in the end, um, although there's there's enormous variation between you know a liberal democratic state and a, uh, and a non-liberal democratic state, people understand that that there are there are you know different kinds of regimes in the world. 
but the basically the systems that that regulate us are are in the end based on a monopoly of violence um and that's that's what keeps us in order and and if you push too far if people go onto the streets and stay on the streets when they're not given permissions to be on the streets then they'll feel the force and that happens wherever we look in the world so i think all of those ideas they're still very much part of of the anarchist movement but i think they're understood in a slightly different uh, well, they're understood in a particular context, and that context has changed. At the beginning of that that response, you talked about uh, what their expectations were. I guess in the nineteenth century or the end of the end of the nineteenth century, and it's and how what their sentiments towards capitalism um, was at the time. Do you think that's changed because capitalism has now indoctrinated us so deeply? I mean, things changed dramatically after after 1945, um, and you have a kind of a new settlement, certainly in in America and in the UK and in the the European states that come out of the war, as you know, the growth economies. So Germany, France, uh, Italy, to a to a certain extent, but and the settlement is based on on growth, and the provision of consumer goods, um, leisure, entertainment. I mean, actually, all of the things that we see falling apart in the COVID lockdown <laughs> that people can't get access to, that's the promise. It integrates people into capitalism in very different ways to the ways in which they were integrated into it in the 19th century, which was largely through big industrial enterprise, where you did have, you know, sort of concentrations of predominantly but not exclusively male working class manual workers so mines factories I mean, they had a lot of women in the factories too of course but but where you have this you know this kind of um really heavy industrial plant and and that that has largely disappeared i mean we've changed our technologies now i think at the end of the of the 19th and early 20th century some of the anarchists could see this coming so they could see the rise of consumer cultures they could see the development of retail, as did some Marxists too. So the development of the arcades and the shopping centres and the, and the ways in which that was changing our social relationships and the ways in which, you know, it, it changed class compositions. So we weren't just talking about uh, the working class as, uh, you know, as this sort of in, the industrial worker, the industrial male worker predominantly. We were talking about the working class as people who were being brought into, you know, pretty much very, I mean, highly regulated roles under different kinds of management regimes, but where it seemed as if this was a much more consensual relationship. Um, and I think that's where we are now, that it looks as if actually we, we all benefit or enough of us benefit from the access to these goods, whether or not we can afford them, they're kind of there in front of us. And the, the rhetoric that goes with that is that, well, you know, if you, if you work hard at school, if you get a good job, you know, you can have all of this stuff. And I think some of the gloss is, is coming off of that, particularly as, as people see things crumbling in front of their eyes. But I think it does change the relationship that people understand to capitalism. It doesn't look like people are being forced into brutal uh, conditions of labor. It looks as if people have chosen this. At least not in the West. At least not in the West, yeah. And we can forget what capitalism means for all of those countries which service this system.
you know, it's okay to pay somebody working in, say, a Nike factory $1.25 a day because, well, they can live on that there. <laughs> That's right. Or, or, if, or even, if, even if our consciences are pricked by that, um, we can kind of blame it on the political regime that, that forces them to labour in this way and sort of say, well, all they need is a bill of liberal democracy and then things will be okay because they'll be like they are here where we can choose to work for a dollar a day. Yeah, because we can all eat 12 pounds of red meat a day and yeah, that's right. <laughs> drink from plastic that's right. water bottles. <laughs> that shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting too, talking about that sense of optimism. And, and I, I feel like particularly with this year being the way that it has with the lockdowns and you know the isolation that people are, are feeling, that optimism has suffered, but I think that's I think that's goes be before the lockdown, um, and I'm I'm thinking that the way that we have more reason to be optimistic today, even if it seems like there's less, because despite this entrenchment of capitalism, there's also a great deal of like a more awareness around it and more openness to it, and this lockdown I think has created some of that. So optimism moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's always reason to be optimistic, even in the darkest times. I mean, because, you know, what else can you be? Um, and I think one of the things that, that was remarkable about, I mean, there are two things that are remarkable about the COVID crisis. One was the, um, the, the conversations that started very early on when the lockdowns started, which were, who wants to return to normal? <laughs> you know, why do, why do we want this? You know, isn't this a chance where we where we start to think about how we might might do things differently? Um, so at least having that conversation is is back on the agenda, which is fantastic. And the other thing was the uh, the mushrooming of of mutual aid associations, which you know whether they thought of themselves as anarchist or not, were you know examples of of anarchy in action because yeah, they they were grassroots. They were pretty much uh, you know self organised. Uh, they were based on on ethics of care. Uh, you know, people were providing for each other, looking out for each other. You know, you had all kinds of people setting up providing PPE for hospitals who couldn't get it through their through their governments. Um, you know, it's phenomenal what was going on. You know, you've got sort of residential neighbourhood areas, and you've got these kinds of associations, um, or the, the infrastructure uh, at least in place. And and plus, you have a lot of um, religiously based communities who are very used to to making sure that 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 they're looking out for their um, for their own for members of their of their communities and trying to work with other communities to you know to bridge gaps and all the rest of it. But I mean the the, the information I I got from people who were in um, my nearest city, which is Leicester, and and I was talking to people who were also working in New York, was that you know that these 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 cities were actually sort of you know covered with different kinds of mutual aid association with people going out and delivering medicines and food and uh, and all of this stuff was going on so multiple groups um working independently of each other but but linked uh through online networks so that you could anyone could go into a onto the to the mutual aid pages and find out where their where their local groups were and make contact with them either to help or to receive support and, and that you know that was uh, amazing Going back to when you had talked about the difference between um, anarchism uh, um, after 1945 and before 1945, that war 
uh, the Second World War looked very different to me after I started reading further, because of course I grew up like most people with the idea that the Second World War was a justified war and we were, you know, getting rid of Hitler and, you know, uh, ending that kind of Nazi fascism. But when I saw that war from a different lens, it really looked like a, a war for capitalism. That's how I so, thought. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I think there was, um, I mean, clearly the motivations for, um, I mean, it's difficult to, to, to see the state's response. I mean, the UK's response as, as purely anti-fascist when they'd already let Spain fall. So if they'd really wanted to, to do something about, about the fascists in Europe, then that would have been the better opportunity. And, you know, it's argued by, by historians of Spain that, that had the French and the British intervened uh, to save the Republic, I mean, they weren't interested in the anarchists, that's for sure, but had they intervened to save the Republic, then you might not have had the Second World War. But I think from the point of view of the anarchists, I mean, it, it, it did cause conflict within the movement just as the First World War had done. So there were some people, um, notably Rudolf Rocker, who was one of um, Emma Goldman's really close correspondents. And when she goes to Spain, she's writing to Rudolf and Millie Rocker um, as, as really trusted friends. And his position on the Second World War was that actually there, there had to be a, the anarchists really had to respond with the allies to defend liberalism, if you like, as, as not as the bullock against Nazism, because he didn't think that. But his argument was that if, if, if the Nazis were victorious and liberalism fell, uh, then actually that would, that would change the whole of the kind of the ideological scene globally. Yeah, it's like six steps backwards. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so most of, I mean, as far as I'm aware, the mainstream anarchist movement, certainly in the UK and I think also in America, was, was determinedly anti-war, uh, just as Emma Goldman had been in, in the First World War. But it, it, it did cause conflict because there was some credence, I suppose, if you like, in the idea that this was a war against fascists. It was. Uh, and, and, you know, there are different ways that you can fight fascists, of course. You can fight fascists without joining uh, military uh, initiatives. Um, but I think the, you know, as I say, people like Rocker felt that, that liberalism itself was worth preserving as a, a least worst option. Yeah, and of course, and of course, you know, yeah, and and he, you know, his argument uh, was that you know the end of the war was a was a fantastic opportunity to think about reconstituting Europe as a federation, which of course never happened. <laughs> it's very sad, you know, when you read what he had to say, because he he really thought that that was possible, but um, of course that didn't happen, and the states were reconstituted, and they were reconstituted on the lines of. Of capitalism and liberal democracy so it was the reassertion of that power absolutely um something that emma goldman brings up in this same essay that you kind of touched on there and i wonder about this is um in the essay she talks about uh the conflict between um individual and social instincts and I wonder, is this the same thing that we refer to when we talk about libertarian or individual ideas as opposed to socialism or collective ideas? 
Yeah, so I think one of the really brilliant things about Emma Goldman is is the way that she thinks about individualism and and social instincts. She makes a distinction, I mean, towards the end of her life between what she calls, I mean, she celebrates individuality. So she's a great defender of the uh, ability of individuals to express themselves creatively in any ways they wish. And she's, uh, by the same token, deeply suspicious of the kinds of um, constraints that exist within social groups. We all have these norms, we have these customs, these ways of living, and and she always wants to to, to defend the individual to to transgress and to break the taboos, if you like, which is what she did in her own life. But she distinguishes that kind of individuality from what she calls rugged individualism. Um, and rugged individualism is, I guess, what we call a, a much more straightforwardly liberal idea of asserting your rights in the world in order to advance your interests, your self-interest against everybody else. So her view is that we are social creatures, we have a social instinct, we are drawn to live with each other, we, we benefit enormously from that contact, that community that we have with each other, but we also have to recognise that that can be repressive. And alongside that, the, con the best condition in which we can try to balance, if you like, or bring together, I think actually from her point of view, it wouldn't be to balance, it would be to enjoy the creative tension between what she thinks is a social instinct and the expression of creativity, is to ensure that we, we don't give ourselves artificially tools which will enable us to dominate each other. So we have to live in a condition of equality. We have to be communist. We have to share because that speaks to our social instinct. And it also means that the dangers of some people accumulating more economic power and therefore entrenching a political power will be reduced. So that's why she's not a ragged individualist, but she is someone who celebrates individuality. And that vision is so compelling. Like it's so it feels so like where we as humanity are moving to. Is it possible? Like, is it possible that we can get there? Well, it seems like common sense to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I can't imagine why, how anybody would would dispute it as a, a, you know, that surely, you know, what she describes is a is an inherently desirable and attractive condition uh, for all of the for all of the problems and the heartache and upset that it can bring. Because you know, people who transgress can cause upset to the people that they love. Of course they can. Um, but actually, in the end, we recognise that that's how we maintain the, the sort of the dynamics of, of social relationships and, and the societies that we value and treasure. It's the, you know, the real stumbling block is, I think, to, to encourage people to understand the second part of the argument, which is that, you know, you, you can't enjoy that that condition unless you get rid of this idea of exclusive rights to possession yeah. and, and that's not just in the property of things but also in the property of people and, yeah. and it's really really hard and I think she knows it's hard I mean and, and you get that in living my life where she says you know she can't break away from people like Reitman you know she's so um, she's so conflicted in that relationship you know, these are hard things, but that's how we do it. We, we live it. We have to live it. And I, I think like 
I think what's difficult is I think it goes back to this, you know, very commonly thrown about psychological idea that people don't like to give up things. They don't like to lose things. Like it doesn't matter what they're going to gain. Right? They, they don't like to give things away. No, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and there's a lot of ideological, ideological baggage with that too, that, you know, that, that, you know, the idea of, of not having possession, not having right of, of, of exclusive ownership, well, that, that's associated with a political system that we all think is appalling, you know, which is, you know, authoritarian communism, you know, who wants that, you know, so we tend to, you know, create these, um, these, these artificial frameworks, which scare us, and then say, well, we're better to stick. Because yeah. there's no, there's only, there's only two alternatives. <laughs> there's no other ways we can do this. And I think that's what the anarchist is always trying to tell you that, that of course there are other ways that you can do this, but the only ways that you can do it is by, is by working collectively with other people. Is it possible for some to live to anarchist ideals within the system that we've got? Um, well, I think it is recognizing that, you know, you're always more or less compromised. It's very difficult, I think, for people to, to completely withdraw. Quite a lot of what Emma Goldman says, too, is, is hard. You know, she's, she encourages people to, to really kind of challenge and break free and to, to emulate her, if you like, in, in, um, in provocation and I think that is really that's a hard call but I don't think that you know the choices that people make have to be have to be their own so within that those kinds of constraints and recognizing that that it's 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 difficult for people to completely withdraw yes I think you can live anarchist principles and and if you look at the way that the anarchist organize in in social centers they run libraries they run all kinds of uh, organizations, cooperatives, you know, you name it, anarchists do it, and, and they do it on alternative rules and, and, and norms, and live all of the problems and the difficulties and the time that that, that that requires, because I don't think you can do these things without incredible effort. It's a big ask. When I was living in London, in England, in the late 80s and early 90s, and there was a squatters' rights association that had taken over like a city block, essentially, of London and had, they had all kinds of things going on in there, like a daycare and yeah. a bakery and gardens. It was really, I mean, I wasn't, I visited a few times, but I wasn't involved with it, but it just seemed amazing to me yeah you know? and I think there, I mean there are there are these kinds of squats all over um I mean a lot of them are being shut down now I mean a lot of the ones in the, that were thriving in Poland for example have been shut down um you know but there are there are these spaces which are anarchist or anarchistic there's all kinds I mean think about the experiment that's going on in in with the Kurdish movement you know which is certainly influenced by anarchist principles of um, democratic confederalism so apart from those kind of political experiments, those, uh, you know, self-consciously sort of anarchistic experiments, anything from Occupy to the occupation of the squares, all of these kinds of movements, you also then have this everyday kind of practice of care and support, which anarchists look to and say, that just shows you that you don't need to be a politico to understand that people will organize and run their own affairs 
when they're given the opportunity to do so. Outside of a mental illness that might uh, compromise how one acts in the world, people want to care and be like, to give and receive care and be part of a, of a supportive network. Like that is what human beings want, period, yeah. right? They don't, that's it. That's right. And I think the question then is, is how far we design our social systems to provide that care without dependency. Yes. Yeah, Which yeah, is yeah. kind of what welfare does. So it makes you dependent. And then, and then, and then there are bargains that are forced upon you. It's so, if, so the alternative is to think about how we can make things so that we recognize the interdependence, but we don't actually use the need for care as a way of oppressing people. <laughs> it's like it's state enforced poverty. That's right. I find this a really fascinating area is that what that slide into poverty looks like. And then when you're there, the climb out of it is brutally impossible. Like it's, you know, it's a very interesting, yes, um, that's right. very interesting position, you know. That's right. But the dependence works in all kinds of institutions. So, you know, you can't be educated unless you get a certificate, unless it fits a particular uh, model. And that's laid down by someone else. I mean, there are some cases where I would like the I, I like the idea of knowing someone is qualified. Like, for example, if they're doing surgery on me, I would like the idea they didn't learn it from a YouTube video that morning. <laughs> that's that's true. That, that That's true. But that's a sort of I guess that's a trust, isn't it? yeah um, very much so because you're completely unconscious yeah um and, and i don't think the i mean there are arguments about how far you should ever um allow any kind of specialization and i think that the, the you know the medic example always speaks in in favor of, of the specialization <laughs> it's 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 having the system uh that's set up in order to demonstrate that you've fulfilled certain criteria you know, we can we can get the qualification. It doesn't mean to say that we can do the stuff. Very, very, very true. And the apprenticeship model worked quite well for, you know, thousands of years for being able to teach a skill to somebody. Yeah, you know? I mean, there are different ways of, yeah, there are certainly different ways of learning. It's the regulation of the learning. I wanted to ask, because I find this, I find particularly today, like if I talk to people about anarchism that haven't done any reading, it seems to, and this was the same in Goldman's time. And she talks about this a lot in at least in the Living My Life Volume 1, where I'm still the, coming to the end of, um, how anarchism is portrayed in the media versus how it is from the inside or how it is as a, you know, adopter of these principles or ideas. The media seems to have this idea that anarchists are violent and it's sheer, <laughs> and it's chaos. <laughs> it's chaotic violence. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder like, how did that, evolve and why are we why is it still the same way today yeah i mean it's it's partly the choice of the the label isn't it i mean the adoption of the term anarchy comes after the word is already associated with chaos so anarchy is means chaos before an anarchist comes along and says but that's what i want <laughs> because because my what what you're talking about is chaos is my self-regulated uh, order. So the chaos of the world uh, is the way in which uh, all the bodies in the world, the molecules, the atoms, the celestial bodies, they organize themselves through their own 
attractions and movements and patterns and it's fluid and no one says that it has to work according to a law actually it works according to its own rules so that's what anarchism is systems that work according to their own rules rather than these orders which are predetermined come from somebody else's head said to be perfect in one way or another in order to deliver certain aims of liberty or freedom or whatever it happens to be and then they force everybody to to behave in certain ways in order to realize this ideal so the distinction the anarchist makes is between a self-ordering system that is not constrained by an artificial set of rules or laws certainly moral rules for emma goldman that i mean that that's really what she's uh, i mean she's absolutely appalled by that and that's I mean, you know mathematicians or, or physicists talk about the chaos of the natural world that's kind of what the anarchist is getting at as well there is you know what we what we think of as chaos is actually an order it's and really that's why they call it anarchy now the, the the reverse of that is what we what tends to sort of dominate in our political imagination so the idea that we have we have to have a state uh we have to have a legal system we have to have someone who makes the decisions or some body of people that make decisions for us the argument rests on the assumption that unless we have that we will live in a world where we are always coming into conflict with each other probably just because we're self-interested probably trying to to do harm to each other so unless someone constrains us it will be violent and and that's what what fuels our imagination and and we can you know we're given examples of this all the time look what happens in a so-called failed state militias comes you know come to the fore they all kill each other they all shoot each other you know as if this is not a function of the state itself breaking down this is an example of what happens when you don't have order and that's anarchy and that i think is the is the the pervasive sort of imaginary politics that we that we inhabit rather than the one that the anarchist wants to give us no matter how many examples you can point to of people not tearing themselves to pieces not competing not fighting in pre-state societies in societies that that live according to traditional practices you know all of these indigenous societies that we know exist are being you know slaughtered in the amazon and, and elsewhere across the world we know that they're self-organizing uh, but we still like to think that unless we have policemen uh, running the affairs for us then then actually it's all going to collapse into into disorder so the notion of anarchy chaos and violence is always packaged as one risk that you have uh, that you confront if you if you break the rules of the existing state so people who called i mean people who consciously called for the for the abandonment of states called themselves anarchists they obviously seem to be calling for chaos <laughs> right well and 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 the and the and it, and it and it was sheer political lunacy what they were calling for because it entailed a world that was necessarily going to be violent because you can't see the violence of the existing state you can only see the violence of the assumed anarchy on which the state rests 
I loved what you said about chaos because it's really redefine it's redefining chaos that's like yeah. if, we, if we think of chaos I mean it's it's getting it in your head differently because if we think of chaos as this like uncontrollable thing which it is but it's it doesn't it doesn't necessarily I mean it is scary but it's scary anyway right that's like, right um, that's right so so if you start from the point of view that 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 everything in everything that we know about the earth and the things in the earth um are constantly moving and changing i mean at slower and faster rates but everything we know is about change and there are patterns of change we can see it in climate we can see it in migrations we can see it in in all kinds of phenomena if you if you accept that change is the norm then the anarchist position is that you have to have social systems that enable you to be flexible, <laughs> not ones that say, this is what's right and this is the regulation. And the more walls and the more boundaries and the more laws that you put up, the less flexible you become. And it means that, that instead of embracing change as it occurs, you try and repress it in order to maintain the organization. And that necessarily in, entails violence. It's quite amazing. And if you think that like humans, we're, we're a part of this, like we're not, we're not on the outside looking, no. looking in at what goes on in the universe and the world. We are. No, an we are part of it. And so we operate on the same lines. Exactly. We already do. Like all of these laws are just pretend. It's very interesting that what's real, right? Like in that sense, to me, anarchism feels like a move towards real, like a move towards um, being in the world, being in the world. And uncertainty, but then, but we have, we have messiness and uncertainty in our, right. you know, in our states. It's just that what tends to happen is that as soon as things get problematic, you know, there are you, you call on agencies to sort it out for you or that those who have access to those agencies or, or privileged access to those agencies uh, will call on someone else to sort it out for them. Um, and in anarchy, it has to be done directly. So if there's a problem, it's only you can sort it out. <laughs> and like like you had said earlier, when we were talking about how, what this lockdown had um, shown as once again, is that we will. Yeah. We will organize. We will right. take care, right? Where we can be trusted to take care. Absolutely. Yeah. So so and and so the thing the thing is, you know, how can you how can you capitalize on on that that shift, not only in terms of the institutions that you build, but in terms of the, you know, the kind of the psychological shift in order to sustain them. Do you think that we as a humanity are getting closer? or further away from being able to live to this ideal? That's tricky. I, I just don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, I'm not sure that that's how I think about it anyway, actually, whether it's, uh, whether there's more or less. I think, you know, what opportunities exist rather than are you measuring success? You know, what what crops up that you can you can push a little bit, you can change a little bit, you can. So would the question then be, 
do we have uh, more opportunity today? I think I think that one of the one of the things that's really uh, exciting is there's certainly more conversation about anarchism today, more sensible conversation about anarchism today. <laughs> uh, and there are there are significant movements and there are significant advances or maybe advances is the wrong word, but significant relationships that are being forged across movements that consider themselves self-consciously anarchist and those where it seems that anarchist practices are already in place anyway and that there's a conversation or a, a relationship that can be forged. I mean, there's, there is connectedness, I guess, in a way that it's easier to become connected and to find fellow travellers and like-minded movements. And, and all of that, I think, is really positive. So next week in episode nine, I will be reading an excerpt from Living My Life, volume two, and exploring some more of Emma Goldman's life. There is a tremendous archive of knowledge and information about anarchism on the internet. In the show notes, I've put some links to some of the libraries and some of the organizations that talk more about the principles. So if you're interested, you can check them out. I'll also, of course, provide a link to The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism by Ruth Kinna. And of course, if you have any comments about this or any other episode, or want to start or join in on discussion about anarchism or Emma Goldman, please feel free to shoot me an email or to hop on Facebook and leave a comment or shoot me a private message. You can also check out the website and learn about the other episodes in this series at feralculturelab.com. A link to that is also in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and hopefully you'll join us in two weeks. (laughs) 